This is the Mobile Tech Podcast, brought to you by worldpodcasts.com. Now here's your host, Tank Girl, Miriam Joar. Hi, and welcome to the Mobile Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Joar, and today is Tuesday, November 27th, 2018. My guest is no other than Diana Guverts. Hi, Diana. How are you? Hey, Miriam. I'm well. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for being on the show. Uh, do you want to tell p- folks where they can find your writings? Because I don't think they know who you are. Oh, uh, so I am the U.S. editor for Mobile World Live. Um, and you might know us from uh, the show dailies that we put out at Mobile World Congress every year. So there you go, folks. Mobile World Congress has its own publication and Diana works there. And so we've met many times in the past at various events. And I always thought I would love to have Diana on the show because... She has this really great industry insight, like the other side, the network side, the, the side that we don't deal with as often. And we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff, 5Gs, her favorite phones, stuff like that. But uh, let's go through some news items. Is that okay? Yeah, I'm looking forward to awesome. it. Awesome. <laughs> right on. So uh, let's see. Uh, the first thing that uh, came about this week, there's, uh, some people have received Pixel Slates to review. I'm still waiting for a review in it, so hang tight, listeners. It's coming. I'm, I'm bugging Google about it right now. As you know, I'm a big Chromebook uh, fan. I've got a Chrome uh, Pixel book, sorry, last year's uh, product, and I love it. So it was really interesting to read The Verge's review. Um, what's your take on Chromebooks? Have you used one? So I haven't, uh, like you said, I'm kind of um, an, a normal mobile user, um, so I don't get all the fancy review un- units that you guys do. Um, but, you know, I, I'm kind of familiar with the Chromebook line in the sense that uh, Google uses them um, to try to, to, to reach people with their tablet line. I mean, so uh, this is more on you, Miriam. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I'm, I'm wondering what you thought when you read the story. I mean, for me, here's the takeaway in general. Uh, is that, you know, the Pixel Slate is kind of Google's first official attempt at making a tablet running Chrome OS. There's been others. Acer made a tablet running Chrome OS recently. Uh, but it's this is like a Google product and it's a Pixel product, meaning it's kind of like the officially sanctioned vision, right? Product. Right. And and as such, I think it falls short. I, I again, don't have a review unit. I, I don't want to judge it per se because I haven't really used it day to day and I'm, I'm a big Chromebook user, so I should have a lot to say. But I think from watching Dieter's video on The Verge, I think I agree with him just from my little bit of time I spent with the device in uh, New York when it was announced alongside the Pixel phones. Um, I'm a big fan of the Pixel Book. Last year's device was a laptop, but it's one of those 360-degree hinge that turns into a tablet. And so you have the option to use it as a tablet if you want, like run an a, an Android app in there, or we do some, you know, like for watching YouTube videos, it's great. You don't need the keyboard. You're, you're watching Netflix or something. It's nice to have the option to set it up like a tent on your desk, you know? Yeah. Um, but this thing is more like an iPad or like a Surface device in the sense that you, to really be productive with it uh, for the kind of work I do and the work you would do since you write, is you pretty much need that keyboard cover. And the keyboard cover is, right. is a little flawed according to that. I, I don't remember exactly because I didn't spend enough time with it, but apparently it's a, the deck's a little flexible and it's causing some issues. Um, and to me, that's immediately a red flag. It's like, what is Google doing here? Because I'm like, the, the whole point of Chrome OS and the Chromebook experience is the book part. It's, it's supposed to be a desktop grade uh, browsing experience. And if you remove the keyboard and the trackpad, or if you if you kind of lessen the keyboard and trackpad experience, to me, you're kind of losing out on something there, you know? Right, yeah. And I mean, that, like you said, that totally wouldn't work for people like us who write or anybody else probably who has business applications who needs to be sending emails. Yeah, and so to me, it's like, I think that's kind of where I feel like Chrome books have been a valid alternative to PCs and Macs because some of them are very affordable and also because you still get a desktop class browsing experience. And if you everything you do is in the cloud, say you, you know, you are, you're writing on WordPress for your blog and you're doing Twitter and Facebook and, you know, a lot of what us journalists do, basically, if you do that, I think having a Chromebook around makes a lot of sense because it's, you know, battery life is really good. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. But this, I feel like they're trying to kind of force the Chrome OS form factor onto a tablet, and I'm not sure it's going to work that well. In the same way as I feel that as the Surface device is the, not the Surface laptop, which is a true laptop, but the Surface Pro and the Surface Book, uh, not sorry, Surface 
Go, the little one. Uh, I feel those are better suited for creative folks um, and you know people who uh, need to draw on the on the device, maybe in Photoshop or something. Whereas I'm not sure the apps exist on a Chromebook to really be super creative with the pen because it does have a pen option. So I'm kind of scratching my head as to what Google was thinking. I think they're trying to capitalize on the fact that, you know, maybe converging Android and Chrome OS in a weird way, or the fact that obviously Apple is still relatively successful with their products on the iPad side of things. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've seen the iPad Pro reviews, right? Basically, the consensus is this: these things are monsters in terms of performance. We, we are dreaming of laptops running ARM that are that good but that are full productivity laptops. And really the iPad, even for example, it's USB C type C ports don't support mass storage, right? So what is, what, who is the iPad Pro for? What, what do you think about that? Uh, I mean, I would probably say it's for higher end users. I mean, even just looking at price, I mean, they're not going to get entry level users coming in who are going to spend that much on, on, on an iPad Pro. So it, it, to me, that seems more of maybe even an enterprise play where they're going to go after that segment. Um, but I mean, also, you, you kind of have to ask yourself, uh, why are companies like Google and Apple investing so much in their tablet lineups? I mean, um, and you and I both obviously know this, but the tablet market has been steadily shrinking. And you, I think it was Strategy Analytics said that in Q3, the, the tablet market shrank by 10%. So, I mean, how much do they want to invest in improving these experiences if the, the market is just going to go away? Yeah, I think you're, you're right. I think that the, the iPad Pro is a very niche product for, as I said, you know, creative types like illustrators, uh, graphic designers, and musicians. There's a lot of really great DJ apps mm -hmm. and instrument apps that require you to use touchscreen for controlling all the sliders and stuff. And for that, you can't, you know, it's, you're not as productive with the mouse and keyboard. Absolutely not. Uh, and potentially video editing once the apps come, uh, because the performance on these iPad Pros is really high in terms of uh, rendering video, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I think that's going to happen once maybe something like Final Cut Pro comes out for the iPad Pro. And, and conversely, on the Chromebook side, the Chrome, the, the, in this case, the Pixel Slate, which is basically uh, a tablet-based Chromebook, uh, I think, you know, there is... A limited use case. Unfortunately, the the creative use case doesn't really exist on on a Chrome tablet as well because the apps don't exist. The software isn't there. So I'm I'm you know so that goes back to what were Chromebooks really good for? Which is well, they were really good for writers and and people who you know are using the web all the time for right. like for example, are living in a Gmail interface on on a tab, uh, or you know, so so then you re if you if you turn it into a tablet where the keyboard is optional and you have to pay for it. And that's the other thing. This is almost as expensive as an iPad Pro in some configurations. It's just as expensive as an iPad Pro. So the question is like, why, why spend that kind of money? If you buy the cheap one, it, the experience is not as good in terms of performance. So then you don't want the cheap one because honestly, you're better off buying a, a regular iPad for $400, right? Right. And, and I think you're right that we're seeing stagnation. And I think the reason we're seeing stagnation in sales is because people are keeping their tablets for much longer than their phones. Right. And they're using them primarily as consumption devices and honestly the chromebooks sorry the pixel slate as a consumption device is kind of overkill i mean it's got a big screen but it's not that light the battery life is probably not as good as the ipad um and you're better off in my opinion buying like a large fire tablet from amazon <laughs> and, and binging on netflix on that right like yeah kind of, yeah so i don't know i'm kind of having a hard time understanding this product and the direction, like we were all kind of stunned when they showed this thing in, in New York. Like we were like, we were expecting they would take the Pixel book and refine it even further. Like a thinner, lighter Pixel book with less bezel would you'd be what I want. Instead, we got a, a tablet that's yes, thin, but heavier actually than the Pixel book with the cover. <laughs> and that has, yeah, that has no headphone jack because, you know, USB-C rules the world or something. And, and has, uh, and, you know, has kind of like, according to, to Dieter, at least who spent more time than me with it, a kind of semi janky, uh, keyboard and, and trackpad, uh, cover thing. Uh, although there is a third party one that turns it into a laptop, like literally with a metal hinge, you know, mm -hmm. uh, keyboard attachment It's actually $20 cheaper than Google's solution. And, and Dieter actually recommend, recommended that in his video. I'll link to the to the Verge story in the show notes, folks, so you can 
watch it. I think it's probably the best review I've I've looked at all the reviews of the slate this morning. They all came out this morning. And I think, you know, The Verge has done a really good job at kind of giving you the the, the rundown. Why where do you think like do you think that with 5G coming tab and phones getting bigger and laptops getting smaller and laptops turning into more and more ARM-based laptops. I've we seen we've seen Qualcomm do the 855 this year, right? Mm-hmm. Um, do you th- you know basically so the the laptops are coming becoming more mobile in a way because they're going to have built-in LTE and 5G soon, and they're having more and more ARM-based processor options. And I'm really hoping Apple makes an ARM-based MacBook, like a real macOS MacBook that's ARM-based. Uh, as we see that happening, and the phone's getting bigger, but in a chassis that remains small, where basically the screen dominates the front of the device. Where do you see tablets going with, especially with 5G coming into the play in the next few years? Do you think it's a viable thing anymore? Do, do people care? Should people care? Uh, I mean, I guess the answer to where I see them going is away. <laughs> okay, I, I wow. Well, thing. there you go, folks. <laughs> um, no, no, that's fair. That's, I mean, I don't disagree with you. So, so perhaps selfishly, I kind of wish that phones would still stay smaller because I have, I'm one of those people with tiny hands. I need two hands to hold my phone. Um, But that doesn't seem to be the general trend. The general trend seems to be that phones are getting bigger and bigger. And there's just not that much of difference between a phone and a tablet anymore, like when tablets first came out. So they're kind of losing the, the uniqueness and the utility that made them stand out from either a phone or a laptop. So I, I don't know that there is necessarily a place for them unless uh, someone comes up with a great new use case, maybe for tablets, uh, maybe something to do with, um, I don't know, augmented or virtual reality. Uh, I don't know that there's a lasting place for them, but but who, who am I to say? So I, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Do you think that as technology, like, okay, let's, let's forget about the high-end side. I think that's eventually going to merge with laptops in some weird way because, yes. you know, we're kind of seeing it a little bit in this Chrome uh, tablet, right? And Chrome OS tablet, because it's, it's trying to do both. It's trying to be a desktop experience. Unlike the iPad, it does support any USB-C type-C device you throw at it including mass storage, which is a, you know, you expect that it's really a Linux based computer. Um, and so, you know, in some ways it doesn't have some of the limitation of the iPad pro, but in some other ways, and in some ways it does try to merge Android and, and, and Chrome OS. So it tries to merge the, the desktop browsing experience that by the way, Safari does not have a desktop class browsing experience on the iPad. So, so in, in a way it's, there's some good things there, but I think, you know, we're going to see Tablet, high-end tablets evolved as basically just two-in-one, the two-in-one concept mm-hmm. of why either it's articulated, uh, permanently attached keyboard or uh, a keyboard cover is going to become, I think, pretty popular in the high-end. Uh, that way people have all the bases covered. And I think the Surface is kind of like, you know, the trendsetter here. But I think that you're right. There's no, there's very little room for stuff in the middle. I also do think that the cheap tablets are going to remain. And here's why a lot of people have kids mm-hmm. and you don't want to give a smartphone to a kid because they might not have quite the mobile, the, 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 you know, what's it called? The, the, uh, the ability. To, <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about, you know, the motor skills to like uh, tap yeah, those yeah. small buttons on a phone even though the phone screens are getting bigger and also the big screen phones are the expensive phones so you don't want to give them an expensive device so i think things like a sub 100 fire tablet in a with a 20 dollar bulletproof case on it you want to give this to a kid for consent consumption and gaming and to me there's a huge market there and amazon owns that market i don't see them losing that market anytime right. soon apple obviously has some of that market so i don't think they're going to go away but what i'm wondering is as arm you know takes over some of the laptop duties at the high end and as 5g becomes more ubiquitous say in 5 10 years do you think that the tablets might the cheap tablets once they get cheap 5g radios there there'll be a renaissance in a way you know, that's a really good question. And I, I think it's kind of hard to say because you don't know what kind of new use cases 5G is going to enable. Um, so maybe there will be some crazy use case that's super useful and requires a tablet. Um, I mean, one of the things I saw years ago before I, I had this job, I was working as a local reporter. And this was back when tablets were a bit bigger, uh, like a, a new phenomenon. Um, 
I had the pleasure of reporting on a story where they were using them for augmented reality and stuff in classrooms. Uh, and that's obviously not lost on tablet players like Amazon and Apple, uh, who, at least Apple, I know, has been kind of going after that market. But there might be something else like that that comes into play in 5G, uh, some new use case that's, that's novel, but also appeals to a wide market. But I think it's going to take some time because 5G devices are going to be really expensive to start off with. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. So it's going to take years. So, uh, I mean, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that'll give them time to come up with these new use cases. But I think it'll take a while before the low-end tablets can get 5G at a reasonable price point. No, I think you're right. And also, you know, again, what's the use case other than, you know, hyper-connectivity, which is really what we expect from 5g uh high, you know low latency high speed uh, you know and and ubiquity right is really what we're gonna hopefully get out of 5g and then at that point once it goes down in price you know our tablets even going to still exist and 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 matter our phone's going to be so big that it won't matter anymore even at the low end right it, it, these are all things we'll have to look into but yeah i think it's an interesting thing like i i'm not saying that Google, like I think Google is trying here to see what they can do with Chrome OS on a tablet. And it's a lot of people before they even heard that Google was going to do this, like at least people like me who cover a lot of devices and who are Chromebook users and, and Chrome OS users were kind of like uh, cringing at the thought a little bit because we know it's not really what we think should be happening. And it looks like the result is is kind of a mixed bag and i'm not saying that uh you know google shouldn't continue and try there's no reason why this can't be further optimized and prices can go down and the experience and the performance can be improved and you know they could make a better keyboard cover and then you know i use my my surface go a lot i have one now to review and it's really delightful to have a very very small all-purpose computer with me right i mean it's the size of a normal ipad and it has a keyboard cover that turns it into a very usable laptop type device. I don't really use it with a pen. I don't use it to be a creator. Um, I use it for like, you know, web stuff and the occasional, you know, photo image processing in Photoshop or whatever. And for that, it's great. And it's light and it's got, I think, decent battery life, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm, I'm not against the idea of a two-in-one with a detachable keyboard and, and trackpad, as long as it's done right. And it, it feels like from all the reviews I've read that, that this particular keyboard cover is a little, you know, a bit of a miss. The prices are high. The device is bulky and heavy comparatively uh, to say like a Surface Go and uh, also pricey. So, but then again, Pixel devices have never been cheap and the Pixel Book certainly wasn't cheap last year, uh, but it was an awesome. I mean, it's the best Chromebook I've ever used. I still think that today it's the best Chromebook. You can still buy it, so you know, maybe go check it out. And prior to that, the Pixel laptops were amazing um, because they're basically MacBook-like uh, quality devices that were specialized for running Chrome OS, which a lot of people frowned upon because they're like, well, it's not a full computer. But I would argue that who, you know, when do you really need a full computer? How often do you actually use a separate app on your computer than a web browser? Yeah. I mean, right? <laughs> Even corporate users end up being inside Outlook for the web a lot of times. Yeah, that's uh, for true. the corporate stuff. So, hmm, you know. But anyway, um, I'm a big Mac user when I'd want a full computer experience primarily. Uh, that's my platform. And the reason for that is because, well, you know, I've got years and years of of apps that I've invested in that I can use uh, for image processing, video editing, all that stuff. But more importantly, I, I feel that uh, you know, it's Unix based. And so I'm a dev I'm you know, at heart, I'm still a developer. I like a command line. Uh, thankfully, the Chromebook has a command line, so you can do some stuff. Uh, so does, obviously, Windows now, since they're integrating a lot of the Linux tools in Windows, and so does the Mac. So I use all three, but again, not quite sure about tablets. I'm, I'm, yeah. I, want, I, want, <laughs> I want the tablets. I mean, the device nerd in me says, cool, more hardware, more cool stuff to play with. The more practical person that, you know, would put myself in the shoes of my listeners who have a budget and need to buy stuff would be like, no, 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 don't, 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 unless you absolutely consume a lot of content or you're like an illustrator 
And at that case, you know, buy yourself a high-end iPad because you know the ecosystem is really polished. But don't bother with that Chrome, uh, that Pixel Slate. Don't bother with a Surface device uh, unless you absolutely have a need for a general purpose computer that also has pen input and can be used without a keyboard and mouse, right? Right. Very, very specialized use case. So the takeaway for me is, and again, I will update you on another show once I get a review unit of the Pixel Slate, and, and then I can actually speak with authority. But right now, my gut tells me that I'm not going to like it as much as my Pixel Book, and you will have to come and get my Pixel Book out of my dead hands <laughs> because I love that thing so much. <laughs> I hope you don't have dead hands. <laughs> no, no, not yet. Um, let's switch topics and talk a little bit about uh, device form factors because a lot of these other news stories are kind of related to that, and I would love to hear your thoughts. Um, specifically, there is rumors. Well, no, it's not rumors. There's a patent that was published <laughs> by LG with a 16-camera phone. So a camera with an array of 16 uh, lenses in the back, cameras in the back, arranged in a arranged in a four by four matrix. And the question to you is: You've probably been following from the side a little bit the developments uh, of of handsets lately, and noticed that cameras are proliferating rapidly all over our phones. <laughs> um, and so this is kind of like the logical next step, right? Just to make it clear. Um, this is not a new thing. There were rumors of a three by three array a few years back. I think it might have been a Nokia patent. Of course, it, that was the old Nokia, so it never materialized. Maybe Microsoft inherited that patent. Who knows? But the idea is that computational photography is taking over the world. All our phones are doing much, much more image processing to get results similar to really high-end cameras with much lesser hardware in, in, in many ways. Uh, Pixel, uh, Google's Pixel is kind of like at the forefront of that. Huawei with the Mate 20 Pro as well. And you know, iPhone isn't doing so bad. Uh, Galaxy isn't doing so bad either. Yeah. I mean, uh, Samsung has a, a Galaxy A9, a phone that's not sold here yet, but will be eventually. It has four cameras on the back. LG has a phone with five cameras, two in the front, three in the back, called the V40, et cetera, et cetera. So, the next logical step is imagine instead of having large sensors with uh, stabilized lenses and autofocus, and then you know one lens for each, like wide angle, zoom, et cetera, which is with the trend we're seeing now, imagine that you have an array in the back of the phone and each lens is identical. It's a very simple lens. There's no autofocus, there's no image stabilization, but you gather a crap ton of data when you take a photo from these 16 cameras and you crunch through it at an incredible pace with incredible chips that we haven't seen yet and you come up with an image that you then can edit after the fact like adjust focus after the fact which is something we can do on our phones already but imagine you can adjust the angle and the zooming and all kinds of other things after the fact without loss of quality that's kind of where this is going so what do you think do you think that's the, I mean, people obviously don't care. They just want to take good photos with their <laughs> phones, right? That's a big deal, obviously. But do you think that, um, you know, do you really think, first of all, that people use their phones to take photos? I think they do. So, I mean, I, I think you're definitely right. I mean, I think they're they're shooting for high camera quality images because phones have become the primary picture taking device in people's pockets. I mean, when was the last time you saw somebody w walking around with a digital camera who wasn't some sort of media at, at a press event? Um, people, True. people just don't do it anymore. Um, so not only are phones the primary uh, photo taking device, they're also the primary video recording device. So I'd be interested to see not only how these 16 cameras kind of apply to things like 3D photos and changing the the angle of photos, but also how they impact the way we take video um, and how we can edit that video and change it um, and maybe use it for new applications. Uh, but there's also a practical uh, little nagging thought in my head like, man, what happens if you crack one of those? Yeah. I mean, does it throw off the whole thing or can will it still function? Can you get a case over these things? I mean, I still remember the days when, when you had an old flip phone and, and you dropped it and the camera cracked and you were screwed. So I, I, I want to know how those practical functionalities would work, I guess I should say. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, people, I think imaging 
I've said, you know, look, let's rewind it a little bit back in time here. I started blogging as a hobbyist when I was still a developer making video games full time in 2004, 2005, 2006. I started blogging because I thought, hey, blogging is a thing right now. And actually I started podcasting as well around that time because I was like, oh, podcasting is a thing. And, I, and you know, I like to have a voice. So I put my opinions out there and a lot of it was driven by the convergence of the phone becoming more than a phone, the phone becoming an email device, a web device, a camera device, and a music playing device. And I could see, you know, not obviously very clearly, but I could kind of understand that we were heading in the direction that we have headed, basically where your phone is your computer in your pocket that's always connected, that does everything, is also your video camera, your camera, Mm -hmm. your MP3 player, everything. I could see that coming. And so I've always been fascinated with uh, imaging and but I didn't like normal cameras back then much because it was always such a hassle to get the photos off the camera yeah. and also you know a lot of people were still using film back then you still go to Walmart and get your film developed and stuff and then you'd have to get it scanned in the computer I mean but to me the first time I had a phone on a camera sorry a camera on a phone was uh, I actually waited a little bit to get one that was half decent it was a Sony Ericsson with a half decent camera that actually had autofocus one of the first phone cameras with autofocus. It was the Sony Ericsson, uh, the Cybershot phone. Um, I had the actual Walkman version of that phone because they made two phones that were identical with different um, cases. Like they, one was like more, more funky looking. That was the music phone. And one was more camera-ish looking and that was the camera phone. But the hardware inside was the same. They shared the same cameras. Mm-hmm. Um, so I bought the Walkman phone because it was a little cheaper and I got me the same camera. And this camera had autofocus was two megapixels and I started using it. And to me, the killer app was I can share my photos. Yeah, like I could literally instantly, and this was before 3G. So I was, this was on the edge, Diana. I was oh, sharing geez. photos <laughs> on edge. And the way I was doing it was, well, first of all, they're only two megapixels. So they weren't huge. But I was also just emailing them to Flickr. Flickr is a service that still exists. I mean, it's kind of, you know, not a lot of people think about it now that you have Google Photos and iCloud for photo backup. But Flickr is pretty awesome. And still to this day, unfortunately, it's not very mobile optimized. I wish that Yahoo, who owns Flickr, would have a long, sometime in the last decade, really jumped onto the mobile bandwagon. But the reality is that still today, you can email a photo to Flickr to upload it. You get a custom email address with your account that lets you email to them. And then it automatically posts a photo when you send something to this email address. Of course, you don't want to share that email address with anyone because obviously they can post on your behalf, but it's very cool. So I would use the email client, the really crappy email client in my phone, which was a dumb phone, Sony Ericsson, to email my two megapixel photos to my Flickr account and then share them from there. And it was, it was a revelation. And I think that from that day on, I knew, I knew for a fact that imaging was one of the five tenets of modern phones. It was going to be one of the most critical parts, like battery life, like display, like, you know, build quality. Like there are a few tenants that everybody in the media that reviews devices agrees are critical. And for a long time, it wasn't cameras. And I feel that for the last few years, you know, I think it started with the iPhone 4 where Apple really showed us, hey, look, we're going to make a, f- the, the, it was the first iPhone with a decent camera. It was the first iPhone that did HD video at 720p. And, and it did it really well. If you look at 720p iPhone 4 footage today, you're like, wow, they did that back in 2010? <laughs> that is impressive. And so my point is they got, they got serious about imaging and then everyone followed suit, right? I mean, obviously there's been some standouts like, uh, I mean, not standouts, but but exceptions in the sense that Nokia has always had really good f- cameras on their phones. Obviously, Sony Ericsson when they were still one company. Uh, and, and, you know, Huawei now and LG now and Samsung now too, right? right? But my point is that's absolutely critical. Imaging is critical. I saw it coming. It is today one of the biggest, most pivotal thing people decide about, look at when they buy a phone, right? And, and it should be. And it's only going to get more acute. Well, I because, guess, go on. I was just going to say, I, the other thing, so you were talking about sharing all these photos. Um, I, I wonder if there will be any new network requirements uh, to share larger file photos, or if there will be any new storage requirements that would come with having 16 cameras. And I feel like maybe you could speak to that uh, uh, in some way. 
Yeah, there's a number of uh, alternative uh, storage formats to JPEG that allow to store burst photos uh, and store every photo in the burst, uh, allow to store, uh, if you have three or four cameras in the back, all four angles of the shot. So like if you have a wide angle, a zoomed a view and a, a normal view, uh, and maybe like a black and white view, all of them at the same time in one file. I can't remember the form factor's name. It starts with an H. Um, you guys can look it up uh, in the show notes. I don't want to Google right now while I'm on the show. <laughs> uh, but but basically, there are there are com upcoming file format that will let you manipulate your photos after the fact, uh, like change the focus uh, because it'll it'll in lo alongside with the actual image information for each camera, it'll store things like depth, depth maps and whatever else the camera is, is building alongside the image because it's not just imaging data now. It used to be EXIF only stored like, ima like image date and time, maybe a copyright, maybe the name of the camera, uh, maybe the f-stop, the ISO, all that, that data, but also would store, store like geolocation, right? That, that's EXIF, it's part of JPEG. But now imagine a, form a form file format that can store everything all the depth sensing data the you know dot projector uh, uh, time of flight data and all that other crazy stuff so that you can focus after the fact you can look at different angles um that's going to become a thing with phones that we have today like i think some phones uh, the iphone already supports that for the h whatever it's called format <laughs> and and uh and so we're going to see that and so now a 16 uh, array camera like this it, it, you know, you're not going to just want to get one photo out of that and store it. You want to, you're going to want to have to have the entire option of things. You, you're starting to see this with those 3D photos on Facebook. People are taking with their iPhones. You know, that's yeah. kind of like a custom feature in Facebook. And what it is is kind of calculating a depth map from your photo. But it's doing it all offline and and on the Facebook side of things. But imagine if the phone could share all that data with Facebook directly instead of having you know through a file format that wasn't jpeg right so instead of uploading a jpeg you upload whatever that form that new format is and automatically facebook give, gives you like all these options or google uh, goes through your images and go like and the google photos and goes well you know i think this you know in the same way as right now they rec they, they do like these custom versions of your photos for you like they yeah. embellish your photos for you and they mm -hmm. suggest them to you imagine now you had different angles and focus lengths and stuff to pick from because you had more data to play with i think we're going to see a lot of that happening and it's going to cause a bit of uh trouble in i think for consumers because more choice is always harder right <laughs> so i think that a smart camera phone maker in the future once these features become commonplace or if lg ever makes the 16 lens phone 16 camera phone we're, hopefully they give us what their best pick is for us right automatically yeah, right right when you take the photo and then let you tweak it if you want a little bit but you don't if you're like just a normal you know normal mobile user as I like <laughs> to call them uh you're a normal you don't want to deal you hit the auto shutter button you get a photo and you can use it right now it's old school it saves a jpeg as well that way you, you have a backup right but you know, those, those new form file formats, they store everything, raw data. It's really interesting. So, of course, you know, with this goes hand in hand with 5G, right? Because when you have all this much data to transfer, you, your photos won't be like two or three megs like they're now. They're going to contain like 20, 30 megs worth of data. Mm -hmm. um, so what do you do with that, right? Like yeah. that's where LT is going to suffer a little bit uh, uploading that stuff. So, again, it brings us back to, you know, something I think we should talk about a little later in the show, your thoughts on where 5G is headed. But I think this all ties in with 5G. And, you know, as much as I feel like people really should pick, pe people, I think, use their cameras way more than we think. Uh, on their phones in, in a way that, you know, that, that they kind of expect good results now because the phones have gotten good enough and that's only going to continue to trend. And, you know, a lot of people didn't believe me five, 10 years ago when I said cameras are the, probably the most important feature on a phone. I, I do believe that's true. And, and I think that's going to continue. And so this, this stuff that we're seeing from LG, this pattern is kind of plays into that. Um, and yeah. I think it's it's exciting. Hopefully it'll happen. And hopefully it won't matter to you what the tech does. It'll just be better photos for you, right? Yeah. Uh, so, go on. I think there's more camera news in, in, in the lineup, isn't there? 
Yeah, I mean, this is not per se camera. It's more in line with the form factor discussion that I kind of brought, I like kind of hinted earlier that obviously phones are getting bigger, but it's really the screens that are getting bigger, not the phones themselves, uh, which is really great for people with smaller hands. You get more screen real estate. I still think somebody should make a small phone that is meant for smaller hands. That is a flagship grade phone. We are not seeing too much of that. The iPhone SE was dropped by Apple recently. And I think for a lot of people, that was a bit of a, a disappointment because they really like the old form factor. Imagine something that same size as an iPhone SE, but without the massive bezels and the home button, right? Yeah. Something that more like a, a iPhone 10 or 10S or 10R type device with full, almost full screen and maybe a small notch. That I think is where people want to go. So I feel like real estate on phones is becoming really important for the screen. So we're seeing more and more phones that are trying to either make the notch smaller or remove the notch. You know, some of them like the Honor Magic 2 have a, a slider where the, the like in the old days, it slides up a little bit, not as much as the sliders used to be. But instead of revealing the screen it re, or uh, revealing the keyboard, I mean, it, it reveals like... Uh, a sliver of camera for front-facing shots. Yes. But when you close it, it's just full screen on the front. Um, we're going to go more and more towards that. So this next piece of news kind of fits into this form factor trend, which is a, a, a basically rumors that Huawei is working on a phone, potentially the Nova 4. The Nova is their mid-range line. Uh, they just launched a Nova 3 not this long ago, like we're talking about uh, back in July, I think. And it was a pretty well-received phone in the markets where Huawei sells mid-range phones, which is mostly Europe and Asia. Um, and so this phone is potentially the Nova 4. This is, again, uh, kind of like a, a tease from Huawei that instead of a notch that cuts out a corner or a chunk of your screen on the top, it has a hole punched through the screen in the top in one of the corners where the front-facing camera lives. So it's a tiny hole. The front-facing camera is behind it. And the screen is interrupted there, but it's a very small interruption and it can take selfie photos that way. Very cool. I mean, and it's nice too that we're going to see this on a mid-range phone, just like uh, the, the Samsung Galaxy A9 is not a S-series high-end phone, but has four cameras in the back. And it's the first phone from Samsung that has more than, well, there's the A7 with three cameras, but that is more than two, right? Because right now the, the Note and the S-class phones from from Samsung only had two cameras in the back. So, right. you know, cool stuff. I, I honestly think the next logical step after this uh, tiny uh, punched hole through the display is going to be the camera behind the display. Yeah, much very like the thin, fingerprint sensor. Yeah, like the in-display fingerprint sensors on the, uh, on the uh, OnePlus 16 and stuff. It's going to be through, it's going to be in behind the glass, behind the actual pixels, and it's going to be a very thin display that's OLED, right? because OLED is always thinner. And what's going to happen is the, the pixels are going to go black where the camera is when, when you take a selfie, right? Right. And it, it'll take the photo through the display. So this is not what this is, to be clear, but this is what's coming, right? This is the next step, logically. So I just want you to be ready for that, folks, because you know what? It's the future. <laughs> Miriam called it. She's, she's, got, she's got the... The lowdown. Well, it's the next logical thing, right? I mean, yeah. that's the holy grail. Then you don't have any sliders or mechanical moving parts. And you have a full screen. All the front of your phone is screen. And a part of it goes black when you take a selfie. That's it. I mean, personally, I like that better than the idea of, of sliders. And I think or somebody else, one of the, yeah, there was somebody else had a, a little pop-up gadget that popped out of the top. It wasn't, it wasn't a full screen slider. I think that was one of the Chinese vendors. Um, yeah, 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 it was, yeah. It was Vivo just, Next uh, has yeah, a yeah. camera that pops up electrically. I mean, those and then, just and then, seem, I don't know. I, I don't know cool, who thought that was a good come idea. Come on, Diana, you get the nerds need their nerding, okay? Like, <laughs> All right, maybe everybody cool. else loved it but me, but I think that the in-display camera makes a lot more sense. Although, I have to go back to the whole, what happens if you shatter your phone screen idea? I mean, would that impact it if it was in the display as opposed to having that little cutout that the Huawei phone might. Yeah, I mean, again, this you have the same problem if you shatter the front of your screen today. If the glass is covering the front-facing camera and that there's a crack right through the glass where the camera is, you're going to get the same problem, right? I, I wish there, were, there was a way that they could correct that, though. So, Mark, oh, yeah. manufacturers get cool. on that. Come on. 
<laughs> the software fixes the like the you know a lot of the camera phones today have the ability to remove fingerprint uh, smudging. Uh, they detect it and they can you know it's you lose some quality, but it's still uh, better than in the days when you hadn't cleaned your lens and everything was halos. Remember? Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I always tell people, look, this is my pet peeve. I'm like, look, you got an incredibly good camera in your pocket with you at all times, and you use it. Awesome. But can you please do me a favor and just wipe the lens before you take a photo? Just just find lines of cotton on your body. You've we all like to wear natural fibers. It's always more pleasant than synthetics, and it's not rough on the lenses. You can just wipe it with your sleeve or whatever it is you have your hoodie, your your dress, whatever. And then, oops, look at that! No more halos. Magical. Like if people did that, I'd be happy. Like I see so many photos on Facebook, and I shake my head. I'm like, all you had to do was wipe your lens. You. <laughs> It would be nice, though, if they could build that into the whole, because remember how you were saying they, they're going to have all this awesome processing camera technology? If they could just build that into the single snap, you know, just yeah, automatically yeah. Well, I think that. Yeah, I think it's going to happen. It's starting, it was starting to see algorithms that correct for fingerprints somewhat. Um, so I think that's, it's starting to happen. But it's, it's a tough, again, it, it takes compute power. So it's only at the high end we're seeing that right now. Uh, eventually, that all trickle down, you know, trickle down yeah. economics as it were. Um, so that's, that's kind of interesting that Huawei might be the first with a, uh, you know, a, a cutout in the screen, like a, not a notch, but a hole. Um, that's cool. Uh, and then uh, more news-ish related things. Uh, OnePlus 6T, as you know, is one of my favorite phones. Hopefully you saw my review on Geekspin, geekspin.co, check it out. Uh, I will link it in the show notes. Uh, basically, the OnePlus 6T is a pretty awesome phone for the money. It's flagship performance for a lot less uh, money and it has some cool features like an in-display fingerprint reader that doesn't completely suck because a lot of them have sucked Sorry. so far um and so there's rumors <laughs> it's true right i mean i don't <laughs> I know, know if you've used them but i just love how frank you're being <laughs> yeah, well sucked. you know it, it's like the lot of technology when it's initially new sucks and uh and you know it needs to be refined apple generally waits until it sucks less to release their uh, new technology they're pretty good at trying to release new technology that doesn't suck too much but you know in the wild world of android where china rules the roost um Anything goes, really, which is kind of why I love Android so much is because a lot of people throw caution to the wind and just go like, ah, screw this. We're just going to do it. It's going to suck, but we'll be the first. <laughs> right. right? I, I kind of love that in a way because that's how innovation happens. You, you got to suck at some point first, right? Yeah. Otherwise, nobody's going to follow. So um, I'd prefer it didn't suck. But uh, <laughs> so the good thing about the 60 fingerprint reader, just like the Mate 20 Pro fingerprint reader that are both in display, they're not too bad. I have a Vivo uh, V11, which is a, an earlier in-display fingerprint reader tech. And it's uh, it's fine. It works. But wow, it is uh, much more, let's say, problematic. Um, so, you know, you know, that's why it simply has also has face ID. So it's fine. But um, the OnePlus 60 is very popular. It's the first OnePlus phone that you can buy on a carrier in the US. That's a big deal. Mm -hmm. But now we're hearing rumors of a partnership uh, with McLaren, the, the high-end supercar UK-based uh, uh, you know, car manufacturer um, and race car manufacturer. McLaren is mostly known for their Formula One race cars and so, uh, partnership between OnePlus and McLaren for a special edition OnePlus 6T, why not? I mean, look, the reality is this. Oppo has a partnership with Lamborghini. Huawei has a partnership with Porsche Design. Uh, well, Porsche Design is not Porsche, but it's close enough. Uh, so, you know, the reality is there's a lot of phone manufacturers that take their high-end devices and make, uh, make, you know, these kind of supercar partnerships, right? Uh, who had somebody had a Ferrari partnership? I can't remember. Acer, Asus. Oh, I, think, I think it's Asus. Anyway, the, there you go. This perfect. This this is a perfect marriage. I think. Um, well, what do you think on these? Do you, do you think it's just bragging rights oh, or what? marketing? So I, I guess I really don't get the appeal of all these custom editions uh, personally. But again, I'm kind of a luddite. But um, in this case, I, I would say that OnePlus kind of has some breathing room, right? Because their 60 oh, yeah. uh, is a high, is their high-end flagship, but it still comes in way below the price of, say, an iPhone. So they can afford to put out one of these special editions and pack in more specs and all these um, new selling features for a higher price point that will still probably be below Apple or even maybe some of Samsung's flagship tier. So, I mean, why not? <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, look, you're right. They have the runway in terms of bringing the price up. But more importantly, you know, they already are at 8 gigabytes and 256 gigabyte, uh, 8 gigabytes of RAM, 256 gigabytes of storage on their $629 device, right? So where can you go from there? 10 gigabytes of RAM, maybe 512 gigabytes of storage, and then price it at $1,000 and call it a McLaren phone? I mean, Why not? I, I guess. Give it a nice orange finish, like those McLaren cars. They always come out in orange first, like this really crazy racing orange. Uh, I would never buy... I mean, you know I'm a car fan. I'm a, I'm a big automotive enthusiast. I have several cars. I love my cars. But I would never, ever buy an orange car. I don't know what people are thinking when they buy an orange car, other than, hi, I have a small dick or something. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but well, that's my opinion. You they, know? Just, they just want the cop's attention. Maybe. I mean, that's really a good way to get the cops' attention. Oh, yeah. um, but, you know, McLaren, they make fantastic cars. I sadly have not had the privilege of driving one yet. But I have a few friends in the automotive journalism world that have, and uh, they tell me great things about them. So I am sure that we're going to see a OnePlus 6T with McLaren co-branding. That's going to cost more money. And it uh, might be orange, might be uh, this crazy lime green color that McLaren is really also quite famous for. We, we'll see. Look, this is no big deal, but it's there. And uh, it means I think that OnePlus is, I think they're maturing. And to me, that's the takeaway here is, you know, we've seen them mature with going to the, being available on a US carrier T-Mobile and making a phone that is certified by Verizon for the first time um, to work on their LT network. That's a huge deal. Uh, for the US at least. And for the rest of the world, they've had partnerships as well, but now they have a lot more carrier partnerships. And we know the, the, the name of the game, if you're a handset terminal manufacturer, is you need some agreements with carriers and the operators. So that's good. And now we're seeing this partnership with a kind of a premium brand that kind of, you know, goes well, I think in line with the price of the OnePlus phones has slowly been creeping up, even though they're still extremely great value. But, you know, they are trying to reposition themselves more as a mainstream brand and potentially now a high-end brand by making, uh, you know, co-branded co device. I think it's cool. You know, more, more, uh, more power to them. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see uh, the results of this partnership and uh, whether they get any others. I mean... Uh, yeah, I yeah. think I don't I don't know if you pointed it out, but one of the big um, the big upsides to this partnership is also the financing. So uh, as they move up the tier and even I don't know if T-Mobile is going to carry the McLaren edition, but that'll be uh, another perk. It might just help more people yeah, yeah. jump on this if they can finance it. I know. I doubt they will. T-Mobile, I think it's just not really their clientele, <laughs> right? McLaren no, buying full. And, and orange um, and lime green aren't their colors. It's magenta. No, no. I mean, it's funny because when they released that purple, that that the fabulous looking thunder purple color of the OnePlus 6T, which I have, by the way, I have both the black one and the purple one. Uh, I was really surprised that we weren't going to get like a, a T-Mobile magenta version. I mean, I would see John Ledger, the CEO of T-Mobile, being all over that, right? Like as a marketing toy. So... Yeah. It might still be coming because, Maybe. you know, start with McLaren and work your way down or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, the last bit of news is really not that significant, but it's, uh, you know, Sony phones are interesting. They're kind of always a little disappointing because it always feels like Sony is not really pushing, putting too much effort in their phone division, but they still have a phone division somehow. It's weird. Um, so they are uh, rumors of a uh, XZ4 uh, Sony flagship uh, that would be launched at uh, MWC, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, and well, you know, uh, no surprises. Uh, th this is just a render, so it it it's from Unleaks. They're pretty reliable. Uh, it looks a lot like the present XZ3, but with three cameras in the back instead of two. And it definitely matches the industrial design and the look and feel of what we expect from a Sony Xperia. But again, you know, I've, they don't seem to send me their phones, number one, so I don't really have too much to say there. Uh, the few Sony phones I've used over the years were pleasant enough, but just didn't seem to hit the mark, just like the Samsungs and LGs and OnePluses and iPhones and Google Pixels of the world. Um, I mean, they're, they're solid phones and they sell, but it just always seems like Sony, with all of their history of technology and, and know-how in, in, in consumer hardware, should be up there much more prominently as a phone maker. So, you know, uh, you know, I don't know, like, uh, I, I wish them well. We'll see what happens at MWC, but uh, I just really wish Sony could really get their, you know, 
thing together and go out there and give us some something special. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any experience with any of these Sony phones ever? Ah, no. And I think the last <laughs> Sony device I owned was a Walkman. So I'm dating myself there you go. a little bit. But, but. See, and, and here's my question. When is the last time you saw somebody whip out a Sony phone in public? Oh, Even gosh. abroad? Like never, right? You're like, no, uh, no. I, I mean, I, I think I would be surprised. I'd be like, what is that? Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, you'd be like, you'd probably tweet about it. That's what I would do. I'd be like, oh my God, <laughs> Sony phone in public. Uh, who did I talk to recently about something similar about that? Uh, somebody uh, whipped out a, I don't know, like, it's really rare to see even a Pixel One Plus in public, in the US at least. And it was like one of those things where I was like, oh, I need to take a photo of this. This is so rare. And I think it was more, it was maybe a Nokia, like a modern Nokia Android phone. Uh, you know, from the new HMG yeah, Global yeah, yeah. side of things. Those, you know, you don't you really don't see those. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, well, that's the news. <laughs> but um, I wanted to kind of pick your brain. Like, we have about 10, 15 minutes late, left. And I wanted to know what your thoughts are on 5G. This is obviously a big topic. Um, you know, like, right now with the verge of it, it seems, right? Like, at least the U.S. carriers are going to be rolling out millimeter wave, AT&T and Verizon sometime next year. And we know millimeter wave is a very special case, right? And then, of course, sub six on T-Mobile is what the rumors are. Uh, and that makes more sense to me, especially on their 600 megahertz band. Uh, so you have a better kind of <laughs> bird's eye view of the industry there. Where is the rest of the world? I mean, China obviously is going to get 5G soon, too. Uh, Huawei and the gang over there are going to make it happen. We've discussed the potential headset manufacturer, handset manufacturer, phone manufacturers that will be launching devices next year. Uh, you know, it's pretty clear that Qualcomm makes a 5G modem with the X50 and we're going to, you know, whatever the next, their next um, big Snapdragon chip is going to be, I'm sure is going to be 5G compatible. And so, you know, we're going to see some uh, flagship devices with 5G next year, potentially even a Galaxy uh, S10, which I covered on last show, if you folks listened to last week's episode. Um, but I want you to know, like, what are you seeing that I might not be seeing because you have this industry overview? Like, uh, what's Europe looking like? What When do you realistically think we can buy a flagship phone that's not compromised in terms of user experience, that's a bonafide 5G device on a bonafide 5G network anywhere in the world. Oh, man. So I think that's going to be tricky. And and I should say the caveat here that I'm kind of US focused. So my, my okay. the scope of, of what I, I know is kind of a little bit more limited. But if I remember correctly, I think there's a lot of um, convergence around the 28 gigahertz band uh, and the 3.5 gigahertz band, both in the US and internationally. And I, it, I okay. may be wrong, it may be slightly off of that. But those seem to be the focus areas. And and as all of the operators have kind of hammered home, you need all different spectrum bands for 5G, right? Because as you know, the, the millimeter wave frequencies, they don't propagate as far. I mean, no. they've said that their tests have yielded farther propagation than, they've, than they thought initially. Um, but there's still the issue of you're really not going to get that outside of urban areas. Um, and then, so a lot of these launches that you're seeing, they're just going to be in very small areas. Um, until you get somebody like T-Mobile who's launching on 600 megahertz spectrum and, and that has a wide coverage area, but it also comes with less capacity, right? Because they have a yeah, smaller exactly. channel. And slower speeds potentially as well. So I think it's actually going to be several years before uh, you have the combination of handsets and networks that networks that can, can have a nationwide footprint because millimeter wave is not going to cut it. They, they can do all these launches right, right. all they want, um, but millimeter wave mobile is not going to get you nationwide coverage. Uh, I don't no. care where you are. <laughs> it's going to be airport grade and mall grade coverage at best. Yeah. And I, I think yeah. that's, that's why uh, 3.5 um, is coming up as one of the other interesting bands. So in the US, uh, I am sure some of you already know that it's kind of earmarked as a shared band. Um, and that means that there are different levels of access. So there's there's licensed, there's lightly licensed, and then there's just kind of a free for all. Um, and the FCC is kind of, they finalized the rules for the band, but they still have to get final um, vendor certifications. But all this is to say that that mid-band is going to be where it's at. So that's kind of why T-Mobile and Sprint are gunning so hard for their combination because they have T-Mobile's low band for the coverage and Sprint's 2.5 um, 
um, for capacity. And I think T-Mobile also has some millimeter wave assets. Um, and the, the key will be to see where other operators find that mid-band spectrum that has the balance of coverage and capacity. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm, I'm, you know, I feel the same way as you. It's like right now, obviously Verizon's already rolled out 5G in some markets mm -hmm. for fixed home use, right? Like you yep. get a, an antenna in your window or on your roof and it's line of sight to their uh, it's tower and you get um, home internet that way like, to replace your broadband. And, and I can see that being super critical in rural areas when it eventually makes it to rural areas because, because last mile is really hard in rural areas and, and LTE has you know, kind of saved the day for some rural uh, uh, consumers, but not as well as it could have and should have. So I think for that millimeter wave will be great. I mean, it does can it does get affected. It, you know, ideally it needs to be line of sight. Ideally, it it doesn't like really bad weather. But I think overall, I think it's going to be good for that. And so they're doing that already. But when it comes to mobile devices, like things that you hold in your hand or have you on your wrist or tablets or laptops or whatever, it gets a lot trickier to do millimeter because I mean, obviously, uh, we've seen from our visit with Motorola in the summer. And, you know, Qualcomm has been really a big part of that, mm -hmm. that, you know, there is these crazy antenna arrays now that, that are really small and they can be put in basically all the different flat surfaces on your laptop or phone and allow you to do, um, you know, a very clever ways of, of, uh, of reducing interference and getting millimeter to work in more difficult environments like indoors, like, um, you know, uh, when you don't have direct line of sight, when signal is bouncing off of a skyscraper and hitting you down the street below, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So I think it's going to work millimeter wave in, in high density spaces like airports, malls, urban canyons, et cetera, potentially. But the reality is when we look back five years from now and 5G is somewhat commonplace, um, we are going to see that sub six is going to win the roost. I mean, it's going to be the main way we get 5G mm -hmm. uh, on the 3.5 gigahertz band on other bands like 600 megahertz and T-Mobile. And that's much more practical because it's essentially an evolution of LTE advanced, right? It's just, you know, cranking it to the max. Um, and that works. We know it well. We can apply some of the techniques from millimeter wave to those 3.5 gigahertz bands and actually get some really good performance. I think it's very promising. It's just that right now, the only carrier in the US that has committed to sub six is T-Mobile and it's on 600 megahertz, which has its own set of challenges, as you suggested, with capacity and, and uh, you know, and uh, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, we'll see how it goes. I, I am looking forward to it, but I also want everybody to know, to reiterating what you just said, that it's not gonna be a commonplace thing for an, at least another year or two. Yeah. And and at that, you'll have to pay a, a lot of money for your plan and it'll be in very selected markets and your phones will be really expensive and don't expect your phones to be nearly as sexy as they are today. Oh, because yeah. here's the thing, putting 5G millimeter wave on a phone that has, no sc that has all screen in the front is not going to happen. You need one array of antennas to point, uh, to be on that flat front surface somewhere. So, you know, the way the um the mod for the moto z3 is doing it is by having kind of like an antenna ear right mm -hmm. that's how they're kind of pointing an antenna in front of the phone uh facing your face basically uh who wants that on <laughs> on a flagship phone right so the the, the question becomes is do we bring bezels back for that yeah, um i think we're we gonna see some chins. antenna what's that i said i think we're gonna see some chins some chins or do we create an antenna like somehow maybe they're working on creating an antenna that works underneath an oled display right you again <laughs> same thing as we talked about before with the camera being the front facing camera underneath the display that would be eventually where we need to go with this right so i think there's a whole bunch of challenges here uh and yes we're going to see some 5g devices next year and yes you, you you will not want these phones trust me because you probably won't be in a market you probably won't want to spend the money on the service or the phone and it'll probably be at least in the us mostly millimeter wave and it will suck because it'll work oh look i got i got three gigahertz download at the airport for two seconds yeah. Well, and then there, you said that there's going to be a lot of uh, 5G devices coming out in 2019, and that's what we've heard. And Qualcomm has said itself in the past that there are a ton of vendors who have committed to using its uh, 5G modem and stuff um, in their flagship devices starting next year. But there's one important caveat, isn't there? 
um, you know, that would be Apple. I mean, they're having a huge spat with Qualcomm and, you know, yeah. a, nobody is expecting Apple to come out with a 5G phone in in 2019, right? Uh, people are saying oh, 2020, no. it might even be after, who knows? But the reason why that kind of matters, at least in the US, is because Apple has such huge market share. And granted, the quality of the networks isn't going to degrade because of just, it's not going to go below the current baseline, but the time that it takes for all those Apple people to upgrade to 5G phones is going to mean that it's more time spent that you don't have that 5G efficiency because the more 5G devices are on, are on a network, the more efficient it is. Right. But, um, yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just gonna say, I think you're right. This is a big deal. Is that let's say I'm going to be generous here because based on past history, it took a while for Apple to give us LT. It wasn't until the iPhone five, we got LT. So I'm right. Yeah. I think oh. the 4S was still 3G. So five. So anyway, it's going to be, I think, as I'd, I'm going to say 2021 before we see a 5G on a phone in the US on Apple. I'm not even sure it's going to be 2020. And so then, okay, so then you're right. After we need critical mass. So another two years after that, maybe 23, 22, 24, before enough people have upgraded to iPhones with 5G and the plans are more commonplace and it's sub six and millimeter are relatively well established in various markets before we start seeing the reaping the benefits from the technology, which is, you know, the capacity benefits, right? Yeah. yeah. I think it'll be interesting. interesting. It'll, it'll also be interesting to see whether uh, carriers introduce pricing changes into their networks because they're, they're pouring a lot of money into, into 5G. So they're going to have to recoup that somehow. And yes, they're looking for new use <laughs> cases, but I wouldn't be surprised if, they introduce some sort of special plan priced here. I mean, I, I don't know. Of course. I can't say, but you know, the money's gotta come from somewhere. They're they're pouring all this capex into to new radios and densifying the networks. So I I guess we'll see. Yeah. I mean, if you don't think that AT&T and Verizon are wringing your hands right now at the thought of giving you, of charging you more money for 5G, you are disillusioned, okay? <laughs> it's like they're looking forward to it. Timo might undercut them, but they're still going to raise the prices. They have to. There's no way. There's no way around it. And of course, Timo and Sprint will be won by then, I'm pretty sure. So we'll see how it goes. Um, but yeah, listen, it was great to have you on the show. I think we should wrap up. I want you to tell people where they can follow you on the internet if they want to hear your thoughts on the industry. Oh, sure. Uh, thank you, first of all, for having me on. It was a real pleasure. And uh, I always learn so much from talking with you. It's it's so silly. But anyway, um, if anybody wants to go ahead and read stuff that I've written or that any members of our team have written, you can go ahead and check out mobileworldlive.com. Um, and you can follow me personally at Dia Marie's Beat on Twitter. There you go. Uh, do you have an Instagram that you want to share with the team in case you take some great photos? I mean, I think the I think Mobile World Live has an Instagram, but I don't personally. Fantastic. I told you I'm a Luddite. You <laughs> no, you're not a Luddite. Don't say that. You have like you have great insights. I I really think that the Apple stuff is like an area that I just don't have any visibility on. For example, it comes to five G. Yeah. So um, uh, I also want to add. For uh, for this for your sake that you guys have a great newsletter you can subscribe to as well. I'm subscribed to it. It's really great. Yeah, the we do. The live newsletter. We actually have a few. Um, uh, we have a daily that comes out, and then we have some um, subject one specific to, ones. Then. Yeah. So. Yeah, go for the it. daily one is really great if you want kind of a summary of industry news every day. I love it. Um, you guys, you folks, you wonderful people that listen, know where to find me on the internets. I'm at Tankerl, that's T-N-K-G-R-L on Twitter and on Instagram. That's like the comic book character Tankerl, but without the vowels. I was ahead of my time doing the flicker thing and dropping <laughs> vowels back then. And uh, you also know where to find my YouTube channel, which is a compliment to this podcast. I show you a lot of the devices I get my hands on. Um, for illustrative purposes, in case since the podcast is audio, if you want to see the phones, see the devices there on my YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash Miriam My full name spelt out, Miriam with a Y. Uh, and then, of course, there's the podcast, mobiletechpodcast.com is the official URL. 
you know that you can subscribe. If you happen to just find this podcast and you like it and you want to subscribe, please do. All subscribe to the YouTube channel and like the videos and stuff. So that helps us. Um, subscribe. You can do that. Uh, the podcast is on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, uh, Overcast, Pocket Casts. Uh, Stitcher, Slacker, and TuneIn Radio. So pretty much everywhere you can type Mobile Tech Podcast, you should find me. And um, this is a weekly show, so stay tuned for another show next week. I want to, before we go, thank our uh, sponsor, audible.com. If you want to listen to books instead of reading them, if for whatever reason your job or your whatever your life makes it such that listening makes more sense, you really ought yourself to do yourself the favor of getting uh, audible.com subscription. Uh, lots of great book choices read by lots of great authors, uh, pretty cheap as well. Uh, if you haven't joined already, you'll support the podcast by joining today through a special link that is in the show notes and I will share it with you now. It's audibletrial.com slash mobile tech. That's audibletrial.com slash mobile tech. Uh, thanks, uh, Audible, for your support. Really appreciate it. And uh, thanks for supporting the show by clicking through and joining Audible. If you haven't tried it yet, you can try it for free for a month. So it's worth uh, checking it out. And again, Diana, thanks for being on the show. Super awesome to have you. I've always wanted you to, to <laughs> join and, and share your insights on the industry. It's been great. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Fantastic. So stay tuned for another show next week, folks. And cheers for now. This has been the Mobile Tech Podcast with Tank Girl, proudly presented by worldpodcasts.com. You can visit us online at mobiletechpodcast.com.